In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. But standing by the cross of Jesus or his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Traditionally today is the day that the church commemorates Our Lady of Sorrows. Mary, Our Lady, at the foot of the cross, witnessing her son's passion, participating in her son's passion and in our redemption. One week before Good Friday, the church turns her eyes to Mary. We look at Our Lady looking at Our Lord. We look at Our Lady beholding the passion. Our Lady of Sorrow, Stabat Mater Dolorosa, the great hymn of the church, sings, Stabat Mater Dolorosa. The mother of God stood at the foot of the cross, sorrowful. If you know any woman named Dolores, today is their saint's day. You can wish them a happy saint's day. For all the Doloreses out there, happy saint's day. I don't think there's too many Doloreses left. It's a name that seems to have gone the way of Mildred and perhaps Lorraine, great women's names that are being replaced by things like Mason and perhaps Dixon, I'm not sure. <laughs> but in any event, that's where the name Dolores comes from, from the Latin for suffering. In English, we had the word Dolores, which is not used anymore, but that also means suffering or sorrows, the dolors, we can say, of Our Lady. And to look at Our Lady, looking at Our Lord and His Passion, we realize that looking at Him became Her Passion. This was the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Simeon. And your own soul a sword will pierce. The Passion of Our Lord becomes the passion of Our Lady. And we know that that word passion comes from Latin, passio, something suffered, something undergone. And what our Lord went through in the passion was certainly something that was something done unto him, something he suffered passively that he underwent. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. The violence our Lord received, he received passively. And yet at the same time, we know that Jesus was very active. He was secretly active. The violence done unto him was passively received and yet at the same time actively accepted. Shortly before the Passion, our Lord Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life in order to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. And so even though the passio is certainly something done unto him, something passively received, at the same time, it is actively accepted. It's a work of God. It's an initiative of God the Father, God the Son, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. I have power to lay it down, his life, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. In one of the prefaces of the Church for the Mass of the Holy Eucharist, the votive Mass of the Eucharist, Christ is called the victim of the sacrifice of the Mass and therefore of the cross, but also the priest and the altar of the sacrifice. And so he's not just the one being victimized. He's not just the one being killed. He's also, in his heart, the priest. He's offering that sacrifice to the Father for us. And he's also the, he's also the altar in a mysterious way. He's the very place of the sacrifice. It's his life. It's his heart that is the theater, the arena of the sacrifice. And Our Lady is co-redemptrix. So as co-redemptrix, she's also suffering passively. The violence done unto her son, the violence he receives as a victim, redounds into her heart. To see her son suffer is to suffer herself. And yet, like Jesus, at the same time, Mary's suffering is also secretly active. She's saying yes to her suffering. And even more incredibly, perhaps, or not perhaps, I think it is more incredible, she's saying yes to his suffering. That fiat that Mary says to the angel, be it done unto me according to your word, is repeated here at the foot of the cross. Fiat, be it done unto me. It's an act of consent to actively accept something that God is going to do. She consents with her fiat to become the mother of God at the Annunciation, and she consents at the foot of the cross to her suffering. She says fiat. And to her son's suffering, she consents. She says fiat. And this is a good question for us. As Christians, our life will take the shape of Our Lady's life. She's the prototypical disciple. And of course, as Christians, our, our, our life takes the shape of our Lord's life. He's our master, our model. And they had to consent and actively accept the path of suffering, the path of the cross. To actively receive something that, in a large part of their soul, they would rather not have. What is that for me, Lord? What are you asking me to consent to? Where is my fiat? Perhaps I'm resistant to some aspect of my personality, to some problematic in my life right now, to some aspect of my vocation, some situation that is off, but I simply can't change right now. Something about my past that I regret and that continues to haunt me. 
where's my fiat, Lord? Where do you want me to accept something that's painful, difficult, sorrowful to accept out of trust and out of love? Perhaps, Lord, the situation of the world, we need to be more accepting of it. Not that we give up on it or say everything's hunky-dory, not Pollyanna about it. But at the same time, accepting, well, this is the situation of the world, and I'm going to do my best to help it along, ameliorate it in the way that I'm called to, in the way that that I can from my life as it is. With greater prayer and holiness, these world crises are crises of saints, St. Josemaria says in the way. Lord, where's my fiat? What are you asking me to consent to? When Abraham decides to sacrifice Isaac in the Old Testament, the great act of faith there is that he trusts that somehow he'll get Isaac back. And it seems impossible, but this is faith. God told him, no, the the promise, the inheritance, the descendants who would be as numerous as the stars of the sky will come through Isaac, right? Not Esau, Sarah's child. And then God says, give up Isaac, sacrifice him, consent to this sacrifice. And Abraham does it without faltering in his belief that somehow God will fulfill the promise. And it's an implicit belief in a resurrection that even if I sacrifice Isaac because God wants me to, God's going to give me Isaac back. He has to because he's faithful to his promises. An incredible model of faith. An incredible foreshadowing, Lord, of you on the cross, that God the Father gives you up for the salvation of the world and gets you back in the resurrection. And you yourself, Lord, give yourself up on the cross to shame, to suffering, to sorrow. And then you come back in glory, in triumph, in joy. And Our Lady, too, Lord, is asked to give you up on the cross. Give you up on the altar of the cross to say yes to your sacrifice and your death. And she gets you back in the glory of the resurrection and the glory of of heaven, queen of heaven, at your right hand forever. But we should slow down, right? This is not easy stuff. (laughs) We might ask, well, how can any mother actually consent to that? How could God ask that of her? To say yes to the slow, pitiless, torture, cruelty, passion, death of her son. To accept it, to consent to it. Well, he was asking her for love. He was asking her to love him completely, to love him faithfully. How could she be against the plan that he was for, that her son was for, and still support him completely? How could she be against the plan and not, in some way, abandon him? To deny her consent, her full consent, would be to love Jesus less, not more. If she was against it, how could she help him do it? And isn't that what she's doing there? She stands at the foot of the cross so her son could look out and see her, see her faithful. Encourage him with her presence, with her faithful, consenting, sacrificial, sorrowful presence. 
It even seems, Lord, that you need her to be with you. As our Lord chooses to rely on Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross, Jesus, you choose to rely on Simon to help you carry the cross. So too, it seems you choose to rely on your mother to stay on the cross, to see it through to the end. Why else would Our Lady be at the foot of the cross except to console and support and strengthen him in this way? Stabat Mater Dolorosa. Standing at the foot of the cross, bearing her sorrow bravely, she encourages her son in his passion. With her consent, she helps him in his acceptance of suffering and death to redeem the world. What a sacrifice, what great courage on the part of Our Lady. How much easier and more understandable even for us and more natural it would have been to rebel against this mysterious plan. To stand there, because in a certain sense she has to, because where else would she be? But to stand there resentfully, sorrowful for what's happening, but also sorrowful for herself and with a kind of bitter anger against God, against the plan. Perhaps even a bitter anger against her own son. A resentment. He could have avoided this. He could have come up with some other way. How could he do this to me? How could he let this happen to himself? Rather, with great courage and great selflessness and great love, she submits her judgment to God. She relativizes her own good. She trusts God's judgment and not her own. In order to be there to help, to aid, to play her part as mother, mother of the Redeemer, co-redemptrix, co-redeemer at the foot of the cross. What an incredible thing to be asked to witness, to accept, to offer the suffering and death of her son. And it would have been easier probably for her to do it herself than to see him do it. She would have most likely jumped into the opportunity to get on the cross and let him off of it. I wish I could suffer for him. I've heard parents say that about their children who are suffering with some disease, especially mothers, some painful disease or very difficult, painful, emotional, personal situation. Mothers will say, I wish I could suffer it for him. Or I wish I could suffer for her, my daughter. And in not being able to suffer for them in a way they suffer in a very particular way, suffer a little bit more. They feel powerless to help, to replace their loved one in that agony that they're going through. Carol Hauslander, in that wonderful book on Our Lady, The Read of God, writes about Our Lady's fiat that acceptance of God's will at the Annunciation, and how it's connected, deeply, intrinsically connected, to her presence at the foot of the cross, to her experience of our Lord's passion. When Our Lady stood up, a queenly child, and uttered her fiat to the angel of God, her words began to make Christ's voice. Those first words of consent had already spoken Christ's last words of consent, her, I commit myself to you, do whatever you like with me, were already spoken by Christ in her. They were one and the same with his Father 
Into your hands I commend my spirit. At that moment when Our Lady received the love of the Holy Spirit as the wedded love of her soul, she also received her dead son in her arms. So saying yes to his life at the Annunciation was an acceptance of the whole plan, of whatever God wanted, and that included the death, the sacrifice of her son. The trust which accepted the utter sweetness of the infant Jesus between her own hands, looking at her with her own eyes, accepted the stiff, unresponsive corpse that her hands embalmed. This was her son, but more, even more, God's son. She trusted God. She understood on earth that which many mothers will only understand in heaven. She was able to see her boy killed, lying there bruised from head to foot, wounded and dead, and to believe the father's cry, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. God asks for extreme courage and love. The bride of the Spirit must respond with strength, like his own strength. Our Lady did this. What a great trust to see her son so vulnerable, so weak, so powerless, dead, and yet to continue to believe, to trust. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. To trust in God's plan, to trust in God's love and his care. Sacrifice is the touchstone of love, St. Josemaria said so eloquently, which means sacrifice is the proving grounds of love. To know if you love something, ask yourself, what are you willing to sacrifice for it? To know what you actually love, look at what you are sacrificing for, what you are willingly suffering for. To see Jesus suffer is to see how much he loves us. To see Mary suffer is to see how much she loves him and, by extension, how much she loves us. Woman, behold your son. She sees him in us now and loves us in the same way. Sacrifice is the touchstone of love. And perhaps, Lord, I'm sacrificing all sorts of things to the wrong ends, to the wrong gods. How much virtue and goodness, Lord, have I sacrificed to love of comfort? How much temporary peace and calm have I sacrificed to cowardice? How much generosity, Lord, and prayer have I sacrificed to love of comfort or entertainment? How much grace have I sacrificed to sin? Sacrifice is the touchstone of love, even when it seems like we're not loving or not sacrificing. We're actually sacrificing good things, sacrificing better things for worse things. How much friendship, Lord, generosity, holiness have I sacrificed to my egoism, to my self-centeredness? Maybe you remember a time when you had to convince your mother that something or another was a good idea. That going away for a weekend for the first time with friends or going off to college or doing some sort of adventurous excursion that involved some risk or danger, mountain climbing, I don't know. And you had to try to console her and, and 
encourage her to let you go. Or at least calm her down a bit about the plan. And you'd say something like, don't worry, mom, it'll be all right. Hey, don't worry, mom, I'm okay, it'll be okay. I remember there was a TV show about a crazy police officer in the 1980s. Among other things, he had this gigantic gun, a huge 45, but it was like two feet long. And he was in love with it. He used to sleep with it in his bed and talk to it and stuff. Anyway, had it under his pillow. <laughs> and he had this partner um, who uh, would tag along with him on these crazy adventures. And there was this tagline that he used, which was uh, came up in every episode. He'd be about to do something absolutely insane with his partner involved. And he'd look at him and he'd say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then he would proceed to like, you know, drive his car off of a skyscraper <laughs> onto another one or whatever. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. And I think Our Lady and Our Lord must have talked about the passion beforehand. Jesus predicted it to his apostles, to his disciples. It caused the first rebellion of St. Peter. God forbid, Lord, that this should happen to you when Jesus talks about suffering and dying at the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees. God forbid, Lord, that this should happen to you. And Our Lady was more important than even Peter. She was the first disciple. She was his mother. And she was intimately involved in the plan. And she knew. She had intimations and knew the plan. Your own heart, a sword, will pierce. And so there must have been times when they discussed it and when he had to comfort her. Don't worry, Mom, it'll be all right. And he assured her specifically of the resurrection, as he did his disciples, even though they didn't understand what he was talking about. He assured her that he would be okay. And so at the foot of the cross, Our Lady is incredibly sad, unimaginably sorrowful, suffering a martyrdom in her heart. But she's not crushed. She's loving. And she's hoping. She stands firm at the foot of the cross, Stabat Mater Dolorosa, standing by the cross. Above all, she's not despairing. She's sad, but she's hopeful. She knew he was God. She knew he was God's beloved. She believed in the resurrection. He assured her of God's power and promise. She had seen that power and that promise worked out in her life before. And in this too, she reflects Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross is not despairing, but hopeful. He's hopeful of future glory. He's loving. Even though he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a way of just summarizing all of Psalm 22, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Psalm 22. Cardinal Ratzinger pointed this out that when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, it's a kind of indication of the depth of his agony, what he experiences as taking on sin, a certain involuntary, unmerited separation from God, as if he were a sinner. But it's also a way of summarizing the rest of the psalm, and the rest of the psalm 
is all about hope and trust and trust in God as a redeemer. The letter to the Hebrews puts this so powerfully, so clearly. The mixture of pain and sorrow, but also of joy and confidence in future joy that Jesus has on the cross. Therefore, since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we, le- we read the famous passage in Hebrews. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. For the sake of the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Very important, right? Our Lord is there suffering, sorrowful. Our Lady is there suffering, sorrowful. But they're not crushed, right? They're there ultimately to be happy, to be joyful, to be victorious. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Lord preached in the Sermon on the Mount one of those Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Our Lady brings this beatitude to fulfillment. She personifies it so beautifully at the foot of the cross. Happy, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And a hope of future comfort, a hope of future joy and happiness. Father Faber, who has a long book on Our Lady at the Foot of the Cross, a very beautiful book. One of the points he argues is that Our Lady is actually happy at the foot of the cross. <laughs> um, and it's a very spiritual argument, of course. Uh, he's trying to argue that, well, Our Lady is loving and love is always joyful. And so therefore, Our Lady has to be happy and her sorrow, her sorrows are kind of intensifying her joy. And that might be true, but for me, it's a little bit, it's a little bit much, right? To, to call the Mater Dolorosa literally happy, right? While she's the most, the most sorrowful, the most crushed. Obviously, at some high point of her soul, she's content because she's doing what she's supposed to do, right? And she's loving and he's right about that. But to use the word happy for her state, <laughs> for her state during those hours, to me, seems a bit much, right? And so um, I like to put it to the future, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, yeah, she's in a blessed state. She's in a holy state. She's in a fortunate, happy, quote-unquote, state. But to say that she's happy while she's mourning, uh, yeah, it's just a little bit, I get it, but it's a little bit hard to swallow. For they shall be comforted, right? She will be happy again. She will be joyful again. Lord, there's no resurrection without the cross. There's no true lasting spiritual joy without this trust in God that leads to sacrifice, without a love that leads to the acceptance of suffering. And Jesus, just as you chose not to do this without help, He chose not to do it without the help 
of Simon of Cyrene. And you chose more powerfully not to do it without the help of your mother. Help us to be humble in our own journey, humble in our own sufferings. It's okay to need help. It's okay to look for help. It's okay to lean on others. Confession, spiritual direction, doctors, therapists, good ones, of course, they can help us. Whatever we need, we should not be worried about finding the help that we need to carry the cross, right? to suffer well, to suffer in the way that God wants. And just as Jesus chose or couldn't, perhaps, we don't, we're not quite sure, limits of his human nature, just as Jesus chose to depend on a lady, or he couldn't do it without her, either one, it will be silly for us to try to do this life and to try to accept its crosses and try to live through our own fiats without our mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So help us, Jesus, to turn to Our Lady. Help us, Mary, to turn to you. So that just as you help Jesus carry his cross by consenting to it, encouraging him by your presence there, so too when we have our own cross, we can look to you and be strengthened. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.